Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org. Also, please remember to pray for us that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. And so I've been thinking, especially next weekend is Shavuot, Pentecost, focusing on the gift of the Spirit of God. I thought I'd take some time to share with you what I've come to realize or learn a little bit about with regard to what Yeshua taught concerning the Spirit of God. When you look at John chapter 14, and when you follow it through to chapter 17, you realize this is one major section. Very often it is referred to as a discourse, that is a teaching. And so Yeshua is teaching. Some commentators, and most, refer to it as the upper room discourse, because he taught these things when he was in the upper room with his disciples celebrating Passover. We can call it the Passover discourse. And as you know, when we celebrate Passover, it is like a four-hour event. And of course, we add a lot of music and all kinds of things to accompany it. But if we were in a small gathering of 12 or 13, as in the case of Yeshua and his disciples, it would still take a while to go through the variety of traditions, eat the meal, and during the course of that meal to be engaged in conversation. This is the conversation Yeshua had with his disciples during Passover. And the focus of his conversation, the focus of his teaching, is on the coming of the Holy Spirit. The reason he speaks of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, in this way, is because he's getting ready to depart from the disciples. He's getting ready to give his life a ransom for many. He's getting ready to depart, to die, and to leave the disciples. But he doesn't leave them without the manifestation of his presence through the Spirit of God. And so this is what he teaches us in this section. Well, in any case, as we think of the Holy Spirit, these are my thoughts. First of all, many claim to have an understanding of the Spirit of God. I do not claim to have the definitive understanding of the Spirit of God. But I think the Word of God does teach us some things that we need to take into consideration. But when we think of how the Spirit of God has been understood and embraced, I think that there are two errors that are paramount. The first is a preoccupation with the Spirit. Now, the moment I wrote that down, I really didn't feel comfortable with that. Because the Holy Spirit is God, right? We believe in the triunity of God. So God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So to say that there's sometimes too much of a preoccupation with the Spirit, I then thought, can one be too preoccupied with God? Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? 
But in many circles, the Holy Spirit is so emphasized that there is an imbalance. And so I imagine what I'm really thinking about is the need for balance. And that's always been the case in the life of a believer. We can always go off into one extreme or another. The congregation, the church where I came to faith at, was a church that loved the Jewish people and continues to love the Jewish people to this day. I learned a lot of things in that church about what the scriptures teach about God's chosen people, particularly from the New Testament, because having been raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, I had never read the New Testament. And here to see all of these things uh, brought to the fore and brought to my attention was such an exciting and powerful thing. And more often than not, back in the early 70s, when the Jewish people were being taught about, it more often than not had to do with prophecy and the return of the Lord and his coming. That's still true to some degree today in many circles. The point was, in that particular church, at that particular time, there was a preoccupation, I would say, with prophecy and the return of the Lord. Now, I think today, uh, certainly here at Beth Ariel, I don't think I've shared enough about the promises of the return of the Lord. But when I was first a young believer, it was like every Sunday we were in service, the message is about how the Lord is coming soon. But it was also a time of great revival. And as we would hear this message about, really, the Lord who lived 2,000 years ago is going to come again? We're actually going to see him? I was 17 at the time, a young believer, and just really excited and reading the word of God for the first time. And to think that Yeshua could walk through those doors, as it were, was a very exciting thing to reflect upon. But it was the word of God, and it is part of the full counsel of God. So when I think of preoccupation with the spirit, these passages in John's account, this, the teaching that Yeshua has for us, uh, forces us to think about the spirit of God in relation to Messiah himself. So, for example, these statements in chapter 14, verse 25, Yeshua says, the father will send the spirit in my name. Even though there's a focus on the coming of the Holy Spirit, his coming is not independent of an association and attachment of Messiah himself. So he says when he comes, he's going to be sent in my name. In other words, I want you to see that when the Spirit is spoken about, he's spoken about in relation to Messiah himself. And so he says in chapter 14, he will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is very interesting. You know, when the Spirit comes, the things that he's going to reveal to the disciples is not anything necessarily new, but rather to remind them, to bring to remembrance what Yeshua had already taught them. Well, he taught them a lot of things. John, at the end of the gospel, is going to say, if all the books in the world uh, were written, they could not contain all the things Yeshua did. If all the things Yeshua had done, he says, were written down, all the books of the world could not contain them. There are too many things to tell you about. So you can imagine there were probably a lot of things he taught them that they said, what did he say? How did he put it? You know, it just, what was that phrase that he used? And the Spirit of God would bring to remembrance what he taught them. 
And what we find in Scripture are the things that the Spirit of God brought to their remembrance. And so those are the things that he preeminently wants all of us to know about. But notice the focus is on what Yeshua taught. Notice in chapter 15, he says, when the Spirit comes, he will testify about me. And so the focus again is when he comes, he's not going to draw attention to himself, but attention to the Messiah of Israel. Theologians refer to this as the self-effacing of the Spirit. That is, he doesn't draw attention to himself. So now in many congregations, many churches, there's a undue emphasis, maybe preoccupation is a wrong word, but an undue emphasis on the Spirit. And then we, what we find is that much of what transpires and goes on and is given credit as being of the Spirit does not testify or lead to testifying about Messiah and sharing about who he is very often. Or at least that's a danger. And then it says that he will speak only what he hears, what is conveyed to him. It says he will bring glory to me and not to himself. Now, this doesn't mean we can't pray to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is God. We can pray to him. But it's interesting that when Scripture speaks of prayer, it speaks of prayer to God the Father in the name of Messiah, uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the focus. But that's not to say we can't say, Spirit of God, fall upon us. We certainly can. The psalmist oftentimes beseech the Spirit. But the focus is that he brings glory, attention, testimony, witness unto Messiah. The things he reminds us of are the things that Messiah has taught us. In fact, Yeshua says in chapter 16, the spirit will take from what is mine and make it known unto you. So if there's a danger, this is one danger. Or maybe I should say, if there's an imbalance, this is one imbalance, a preoccupation whereby we almost uh, disassociate the working of the spirit with the presence, the teaching, the glorification of Messiah. The other error, the other preoccupation, the other problem is, in too many congregations, the Spirit of God is ignored. And it's almost as if he is non-existent. And there's very rarely any reference made, or any beseeching of him made, or any expectation or anticipation of his presence. But we have to remember, in the same section, when Yeshua teaches on the work of the Holy Spirit, he says to us that the Spirit of God is a gift of the Father to us. And so there's something, he isn't just uh, perceived as the natural ramifications of inviting Messiah into our lives, although that is true. When we invite the Lord into our lives, when we fall on our face and say, Lord, save me, the Spirit of God is imparted. To us. He indwells us. We're told he immerses us or baptizes us into the body of Messiah. All these things happen instantaneously. At that very moment, you invited the Lord into your life, and you've acknowledged what Yeshua has done in your behalf. And yet, Messiah tells us, while all that may be true, he is ultimately a gift from the Father to us. He is a counselor. The word paraclete, 
parab means to come alongside. Uh, the second part of the word paraclete, for the Greek word for the Spirit of God, uh, is the word comes from the word kaleo, which means to call. So it's like one who is called alongside. But the broader sense of calling is the sense that he comes to counsel. He comes to comfort. He comes to encourage. He comes to be with us in the fullest sense of the word. And thus, he is a counselor, comforter, encourager. So why would we want to ignore his presence? Why would we want to minimize his presence in our lives? And yet in many congregations that is so. Maybe for fear that strange things might happen that would be out of our control. And so we want to just you know, sort of narrow the field so we don't experience that. We're told that he lives with you and will be in you. We're told that he will teach you all things. He will guide you into all truth. And so this being the case, we should not ignore him. And I think the, the propensity among believers, I'll say for myself, is to ignore him more often than I ought. And so when I'm confronted with issues, challenges, decisions that are to be made, my first reaction is to think about it, to reflect on it, and to figure out what's a reasonable response to this. When maybe my first response should be, Lord, I need to just pray a moment. And because you're the counselor, because you're the teacher, because you're the guide, I need you to help me wade through whatever it is I might be going through or whatever decision needs to be made. That's what Mueller, that story of Mueller, he, he could have reasoned, look, there's a chair, I could buy it, it can be sat upon, it's not too expensive. But his first reaction is, I'm going to pray, I have prayed, I'm going to trust. Now, maybe not all of us can operate that way as consistently as he had, but nevertheless, it's a lesson for all of us, isn't it? That we need to take to heart who the Spirit of God truly is so that he's not ignored in our lives personally or in our congregations collectively. It says that he will take from what is mine and make it known to you. So ultimately, the understanding of Scripture, not merely in terms of its intellectual appraisal of what the Scriptures teach, but in terms of embracing it deeply into our hearts and responding to it is something that occurs by the Spirit making it known to us. And here's a neat thing that I learned while preparing for this, but you know, five times during Yeshua's Passover teaching, he taught on the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bibles, check this out. In John chapter 14, in verses 16, he says, I will ask the Father, he will give you another counselor, comforter, encourager, strengthener, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he comes to them by means of his spirit. If you look at chapter 14, again, in verse 26, but the counselor, again, the comforter, the encourager, the strengthener, the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, whom the Father will send in my name, 
will teach you all things, will remind you of everything I have said to you. In chapter 15, verse 26, when the counselor, comforter, encourager comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. In chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the comforter, the counselor, the guide, the strengthener will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. In chapter 16, verse 13, he continues and, and, and he says... Um, But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. I love this section, because, and we're going to talk about it later, but in this section, Yeshua is telling us that the spirit of God will speak about his, his historical presence. He'll remind you of all the things that I taught you. And so one of the things the Spirit's going to do is to tell the disciples, to remind the disciples of all that they experienced with him. It also says he will guide you in all the truth, is what the Greek actually says. Not just all truth, but all of the truth. That is the truth of the revelation of God, which is embodied in his word, which means not only is he going to remind them of things in the past, he's going to teach them some things in the very present in terms of fully understanding what the will and word of God is. And then he says, he will tell you what is yet to come. He'll also tell them of future things, prophecy, So right in that verse, we're told that the Spirit of God reminds them of Yeshua historically. That's revealed in the Gospels. He will teach us the things of the revelation of God. That's embodied in the epistles and all the letters that we have. He will teach you things that are yet to come. The book of Revelation and how it connects with what the prophets of Israel have said. The fullness of Scripture is what is revealed right in those words. But the point is, five times in these chapters, Yeshua teaches on the work and the will of the Holy Spirit. So now let's just step back a moment. Let's turn back to John chapter 14, the first reference to the Holy Spirit that he makes. And what does he teach us about the Spirit? Here are some things we learn. Number one, he teaches us that the Spirit of God is a person. Now, I know in many circles, in many cults, that's denied. But even in many of our circles, oftentimes you hear people say something like, I prayed to the Spirit and it responded to me. Or I prayed to God and he sent it, the Spirit. And we use words like it when we're referring not to a thing, but we're referring to a person. We should always refer to the Spirit as a he or a who. It is he who came into our hearts. It is that one about whom we are speaking. For he is a person. Now, initially we think, wait, how can the Holy Spirit be a person? Because we can't see him. But not all persons have bodies. So, for example, God himself does not have a body. Yeshua said, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Angels do not have bodies. At least they don't have physical bodies like you and I have. They can appear, 
They appear as men whenever they do appear, not little cupids and little children. And I'm certain one day those who painted them like that, when they meet with them, they're not going to be too happy. But the point is, they can appear like men, they can take on a human body, but they themselves do not exist in a bodily form. The dead who are departed exist as persons. You can read the book of Revelation. They're at the throne of God praying. They're at the altar of God praying, but they don't have bodies. They're spirits. In fact, theologians refer to the dead at this point in time as disembodied persons. The point that I'm making is because the Spirit of God, unlike Yeshua, who did take on a human body when he became incarnate, is oftentimes difficult for us to think of him as a person because of that. And so I'm suggesting that there are other persons you know of who do not have bodies, God, angels, and the dead. The Holy Spirit is another person who does not have a physical physical body. But, you know, it's important for us to recognize that he is a person for two reasons. One is we have to be consistent with the truth of the word of God. The word of God refers to him as a person. The word of God attributes to him personal characteristics like teaching, like guiding. We've just talked about all of these things, like counseling, like comforting, like strengthening. Those are things that persons do for another, like revealing, like manifesting, like helping, like coming alongside. Those are person things. In fact, Paul tells us that we are to be cautious not to grieve the Holy Spirit. That's a feeling word that only persons can experience. I used to say to my students when I would try to help them understand this, I'd say, I'd like every one of you to get up out of your chair and I want you to do whatever it might take to cause your chair to grieve. The reason your chair doesn't grieve is because it's not a person. It's an inanimate object. The reason the Holy Spirit can grieve is because he is a person. Just like you and I can experience grief. And just as you and I can be grieved and have been grieved, uh, perhaps more often than we would care to admit. But it's a matter of theological truth. And so we have to affirm all of God's word. But not only that, it's very practical as well. Because if the spirit of God is merely a power or a force, then you're going to try to control it. You're going to try to acquire it. And when you do, or think you do, then you will be very prideful about how you have something more than another. How you have greater ability or control than another. In other words, when we think of the Spirit, if we think of the Spirit as a force or power, we're going to ask the question, how do I get it? And you remember in the book of Acts, there's a story of Simon the magician who was following Paul around. You can read about it. I think it's in Acts chapter, I want to say eight or so. But if you read this section, you'll see this uh, sorcerer was following Paul around. And when he saw individuals come to faith, and to be filled with the Spirit of God and to speak languages they didn't learn on their own. He said to Paul, how, or Peter, how can I purchase this? How can I acquire it? How much will this cost? I'll give you whatever it takes. And he says, may your money perish with you. 
On the other hand, you look at chapter 13 in the book of Acts. You'll see that when Paul and Barnabas are sent out on their mission journey, the Spirit of God says that he separates them from the others in order to be his servants. In other words, when we think of the Spirit of God as a person, we're not going to say, how do I get it? We're going to say, how can he have more of me? Because the Spirit of God is not something like any person cannot be acquired, but any person can receive more of one's devotion and more of one's uh, commitment. So what we would be asking then is, how can the Spirit of God get more of me? What can I do that will relinquish my will? And so it is a practical matter as we think about who the Spirit of God is. But what does it mean to be a person? And this is what I shared before. It doesn't mean a person must have a body, but more often than not, we talk about persons as having knowledge, feelings, and a will. And the reason I say this is because this is what Yeshua teaches in the upper room. He says that he would be our counselor. But to be a counselor, he must have understanding. He must have knowledge. He must have an ability to convey to us how we can deal with something. And that requires knowledge. Persons have knowledge. He said that he would be a comforter. In order to comfort us, he must have feelings, such as the ability to be grieved or the ability to experience joy and happiness and pleasure. And so if he's going to comfort us, he must also empathize with us. And in order to empathize with us, he must be a person. And if he's going to teach us all things and remind us of all things, those are things that persons do. So what does it mean to be a person? It means that he has feelings and knowledge. He has a will. In fact, it says in the book of Corinthians with regard to the gifts of the Spirit that he dispenses them according to his will. It's what he wants us to have, which goes back to the earlier point. How does he get more of us? And one of the ways he gets more of us is by relinquishing ourselves to him to allow him to give us what he wants so he can use us how he wants to use us. And he uses us by filling us with his presence and thus he acquires more of us. That's why the gifts of the spirit are so critical. It isn't so that we can do, although that's the result, it's so that God has his control over us and uses us for his glory, that God might be glorified. But not only this, Yeshua teaches us not only that he is a person, but he teaches us that the Spirit of God is God himself. Now, this is where it gets tricky, because it's always tricky to talk about the triunity of God. For some reason, it's not so hard when we talk about Yeshua and Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and that doesn't throw any curveballs at us. We simply just accept that. When we talk about God the Father and we speak of him as the almighty God, there just doesn't seem to be any real problems there. But when we come to the Holy Spirit, again, there's these issues. I think part of it has to do with what we said before. He's self-effacing. He doesn't bring attention to ourselves. So we have to sort of take the word of God as he has inspired it, study it, learn it, and affirm it for what he tells us. So what does he tell us? Well, first of all, how do we define God? There are a variety of ways, but generally we speak of God being all-knowing, all-powerful, and everywhere. 
that being who knows everything, that being who has all power, and that being who, uh, what did I say, is uh, ever-present, is that being we define as God. Well, the question then is, is the Holy Spirit ever spoken of as being all-powerful? Is the Holy Spirit ever spoken about as knowing everything? Is the Holy Spirit ever spoken about as being everywhere? And here are some things I've learned. First of all, if you look at Luke chapter 1, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is spoken of as having all power because he's the one that enables Yeshua to become incarnate. It says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, here it is, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy Spirit is spoken of as being the power, the manifestation of the power, possessing the power of the Most High. He's spoken of as being the Most High, El Elyon, the Most High God. And so the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and therefore the one that is born of you will be a holy one, will be the Son of God, because the Spirit of God is God, and therefore can enable this to occur. Is the Holy Spirit all-knowing? Well, in 1 Corinthians, we're told, the Spirit searches all things. No one can search all things unless he is God. We can search many things. Some of us are just content if we can search a few things well. But the Spirit of God searches all things, and in case we don't understand what all things means, it even includes the deepest things of God himself. And you and I do not have that capability. Only God can search the deep things of God. And the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us, is the one who does that. Not only this, but he's everywhere. Psalm 139, where can I go from your, spe- your presence? Where can I flee from your presence? What, I read it wrong. Where can I go from your spirit? And the answer is, there's nowhere. If I make my grave in the Sheol, you're there. If I make my grave in heaven, you're there. Who's there? The Spirit of God is there. He's everywhere. That's why Yeshua said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And what does he tell us? By virtue of the Spirit of God that I'm giving to you. And so wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. Why? Because the Spirit of God is the presence of Messiah, and he can be everywhere. So if there are two or more in Tokyo and two or more in New York City, he's in both places at the same time. He's not in one place more than the other or one place after the other. He's in the same place at the same time to the same intensity because he's omnipresent. But not only that, there's only one being who is holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. No one else has that. No one else is spoken of as being holy. We're spoken of as being holy ones, ones that are set apart by God. That's what holy ones mean, sanctified by God. But only the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he possesses the very central quality, attribute, characteristic of God himself. He's holy. That's the central core of God's being, if I understand God's word correctly. That's why the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy. They don't say love, love, love. They don't say mighty, mighty, mighty. They don't say powerful, powerful, powerful. They don't say all-knowing, all-knowing, all-knowing. They say holy, 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 because that is the central 
core from which all of the attributes of God flow from. And that's why he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might truly be holy ones that are in his image. It was very interesting. Thursday night, we had our life group with the teens over at the Estradas. We had six that had come out. And one of the kids that was there, Michael Cohen's son, his youngest son, I think it's one of his younger sons. I can't remember his name. And we were talking, sort of sidelined. And I forget what he had said that made me say to him, well, you know, we're created a little lower than the angels. He said, really? I said, well, that's what it says. He said, well, how is that possible? And yet we're created in the very image of God. So I looked at him and I said, not supposed to ask questions like that. I said, that is a great question. Holy mackerel, right? You know, we're creating the image of God and yet we're lower than the angels. How is that? Well, you can ponder that yourselves. I've continued to ponder it. But the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's the holy God. And so that's what we need to remember. Not only that, but he's the creator of the universe. Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovered. I remember when I first read that verse somewhere in in one of my classes when I was a fairly young believer, and I said, the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. And the professor said, it's not hovered, that's a vacuum. It's hovered, hovered. It's sort of like when I used to preach and I'd say, listen, the epitome of the passage is, and then someone took me aside, no, no, it's, it's epitome. And I said, okay, so, um, but the Spirit of God has made me, that not wild, you know, we always think the Father took dirt and sort of just, you know, molded it, fashioned it, and breathed on us. And look what Job says. The Spirit of God has made me the breath of the Almighty. The Spirit of God is referred to as the Almighty. So you have to understand, in Hebrew, this is what's Hebrew poetry is referred to as a parallelism. So you have different kinds of parallelism. You have antithetical parallelisms, which would say something like, the Lord is, uh, may say something like, the Lord loves the righteous. Antithetical parallelism. But the wicked, he despises. It's like opposites, right? The Lord loves the righteous, the wicked, he hates. I'm just making something up. The wicked, he despises. We'll tone down the hate language. But that's antithetical against thesis, right? It's against the previous statement. Another kind of parallelism is a synonymous parallelism. That is to say, the second line of the poem restates what the first line said. That's what's happening here. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. It's two ways of saying the same thing. What he's telling us is, God made me. That's what that verse says. That's all it says. God made me. But the way Job writes it in Hebrew poetry is to say it two different ways. The first way is the Spirit of God, but the second way is the Almighty. They're one and the same. The first way is to say made. second way is to say gives me. And so the Holy Spirit is spoken of as the creator. These are things that only God, only things that that are only said about God. He's the inspirer of Scripture. Notice, technically, he's not the inspirer of the writers of Scripture. The Bible's very clear. The writers were not inspired. 
the writings were inspired. And that's what he says. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. The writers were God's emanuensises, you would say, his secretaries writing what he would want writing written without violating their own individual styles or personalities. So it's not dictated, but they're carried along so that their own personalities flow through. Paul does not write like Peter. The writer to the Hebrews does not write like John. Luke does not use the same vocabulary as Matthew. And on and on it goes. Why? Because they were carried along, but the scriptures were God-breathed. Scriptures are inspired. The writers were carried along. So it's not like when we say, isn't that painting inspiring? Wasn't that artist inspired when they drew or painted that? This is very different. This is a supernatural activity by which God enables a writer to write what he wants written without violating their own individuality, and what they write is accurate and true. Whether it's historical, whether it's scientific, whether it's prophetic, whether it's theological, it is true. But it's the Holy Spirit who has enabled that to take place. And the Spirit of God is given equal status with the Father and the Son. Okay, just do what you have to do. (laughs) So Matthew 28 says that we are to baptize or immerse those that we make disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're in an equal footing. And notice name is singular, not plural. It's not the names of, it's the name of because he's one God. Yet he exists as three persons. Like I said, we're not trying to get into the triunity, but what all I'm trying to say is the Holy Spirit is on an equal plane with the Father and the Son. Why? Because they are equal. And in 2 Corinthians, one of this wonderful benediction, may the grace of the Lord Yeshua, the, the Messiah, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. How can the Holy Spirit be with them all unless he's omnipresent? And how can he be invoked along with Yeshua and the love of God and, and God unless he's equivalent equal to them as well? What Yeshua is teaching us here in this passage is that he is He is God. And the Holy Spirit is called God. In Acts chapter 5, Peter says, Ananias, you remember Ananias and Sapphira? They said, we'll give you some of our, you know, our uh, proceeds to support the believers. And then they take back some of it. Peter accuses them of lying. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you've not lied to men, you've lied to God. So to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God himself. And Yeshua taught that the Holy Spirit is, in essence, what Yeshua is. And this is kind of a cool thing. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor, another strengthener, another comforter, another parakletos to be with you forever. But the key here is the word another. Because in the Greek, you have two different words for another. There's the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. But then there's the word alas, 
which means another of the same kind. So let's say I go shopping, which is not really my forte. But if I was to go shopping and I was to buy a shirt and I like that shirt. And so I go back to the store and I say, hey, you know, I bought this shirt. I'd like another one. Well, what does he understand? He means another one of the same kind. So he gives me another one. I take it home, take it out of the package, and I notice there's a difference. He thought it was another of the same kind, but it wasn't. Mine was Oxford. It had buttons on it. This one didn't. I bring it back. I say, hey, you know, I really appreciate you giving me this shirt, but I'd really like another one. And now he knows, I mean, another one of a different kind than this one. So we use the, same, the word another in the same way. It just has to do with the context. But in Greek, you don't need the context. You have different words. And the word that's used here is the word alas. When he says, I will give you another counselor, he's saying, I will give you another counselor like me. One like me. In other words, the counselor will be one who is like me. So what kind of person was Yeshua? Well, first of all, he was omnipotent. I remember sharing this with some Jehovah's Witnesses that came to my door one time, and I asked them, who rose Yeshua from the dead? And they said, God the Father. I said, okay, well, what does this passage say? John chapter 2. Yeshua said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up again in three days. I said, how does a dead person raise himself to life? How does Yeshua raise himself to life if he's dead? There's only way, way he can do that is if he has all power. He has to embody life itself. And therefore, to embody life itself, he must be omnipotent. Not only that, he said, surely I will be with you always to the very end of the world. That's a long time. And not only that, but he's with us. How is that possible unless he can be everywhere? Not only that, he knows all things. For it says in the Gospel of John, for he knew what was in man's heart. Scripture is very clear. No one knows another man's heart. Only God can peer into the inner core recesses of who we are. We deceive ourselves very, very often. So what's the takeaway in all of this? Because I find this stuff to be very fascinating, but this is what Yeshua taught. So let me just share very quickly four things. First of all, We need to learn to rely upon the Holy Spirit. That's why he's omniscient. That's why he's all-knowing. That's why he's all-powerful. That's why he's everywhere. Every one of us, individually, independently, and or collectively, can rely upon the Holy Spirit. But to fail to do that is to dishonor him who gave him to us. It dishonors the Father. It dishonors the Son because he's a gift to us. And it's sort of like when a person gives you a gift and just put it into the closet. You know, gives you a gift, but you never put it on. I'm prone to doing that. I save things. But that's not what the Lord wants us to do. He wants us to rely upon him. And by relying upon him, we are expressing our gratitude for this gift. Not only that, we need to devote ourselves to the word. We need to be in the word of God every day. We need to be reflecting on it, meditating. We need to study it. There's so many things online today. There's so many books. Every one of us can be, quote unquote, a biblical scholar if we really wanted to be. But to the degree to which we fail to devote ourselves, we do dishonor to the Spirit of God who inspired the the writings of Scripture. If we really saw it as the Word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think we'd be more prone study it, and to read it. We need to serve our Lord, not because there are needs that need to be 
done, but because the Spirit of God grants us spiritual gifts, and they're meant for service. We dishonor the Spirit if we fail to do that. We honor Him when we do. And lastly, we need to witness to our faith. Remember he said, he will testify of me. And so if the Spirit of God dwells within us, we need to be testifying about him as often as we can, whenever we can, and to whatever degree we can. When we do so, we're honoring the Spirit, whose very coming was meant to be a testimony to our Lord. And so how does all this happen? I think it starts with the first one. We need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time in his word. We need to allow him to work in us and take risks and trust him that he's guiding us and directing us. And we need need then to share our Messiah with others. And it's in those contexts that the Spirit of God manifests most significantly. It's clearly. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word to us this day. These are rich truths, exciting truths. And it's important that we understand the truth that the Spirit of God will guide us and lead us in. But the truth has practical ramifications. May these things not just be interesting intellectually, but may they grip our hearts and motivate us to change. May it help us change with regard to our reliance upon you, O Spirit of God. May it change us to make prayer that kind of a priority that we need it to be in order that we might be enabled to rely upon Help us, Father, to be ones that are students of the word so that as we get with our life groups, may it serve us to learn your word and interact with each other about your word, which is inspired by your spirit. We pray, Father, that you would help us as we seek to serve you by serving one another with the gifts and talents and abilities you've given to us. When we do so, we honor you, Lord, and we acknowledge that you are the source of whatever it is we might be able to. And then, Lord, we pray that you would help us to share our faith. We need to be ones that make you known. We want to see more people come into the kingdom. We want to see others come to know Yeshua as Messiah and to find life eternal even as we have. So help us, Lord, by your Spirit to be testifiers, witnesses for you. And now, Lord, as we present these gifts to you, we pray with thanksgiving for each and every gift and every person who is here. And we ask that you might help us to utilize them for your glory and and for the expanding of your ministry here. We pray in Yeshua's name. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers 
And if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.